Welcome back to the show, everyone. Craig here. Jonah may be uh, joining us in a minute, but for the moment, it's just me and Angela. Angela is a uh, guest. Uh, happy to interview. I, I think I found you on Facebook, uh, but you're you spend your life on TikTok, which I love as well. So, uh, however, our paths cross, and I was very happy to have you on the show. So. Uh, Angela, why don't you go ahead and introduce us? Tell us what what you want to what you want to tell us about yourself and your kind of your business, your niche, and then we'll start talking. Sure. If you don't know me, hi, I'm Angela, the Christian sex expert. I talk all about sex and intimacy in Christian marriage. Um, you don't have to be a Christian to follow me, and I have a lot of, in fact, a lot of my followers are what they would term themselves exvangelicals, um, because. They appreciate the perspective that I am bringing of healthy sexuality from a faith-based perspective. Um, you did mention TikTok. TikTok is my largest platform, but I am on most of the social platforms. So you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Um, TikTok is the biggest. And um, yeah. I talk about healthy sex, intimacy, and how we can have better sex and intimacy in marriage. I'm fascinated that TikTok, because uh, I the stuff that I do on TikTok that's not related to this podcast does really well, but I have found there does not, so our ideal audience is sort of middle-aged <laughs> Catholic men and women who use natural family planning, and there just aren't many of them on TikTok, I've found. <laughs> yeah um so i i have found that my kind of target audience my target so i would say that my target audience is anyone that wants to learn about healthy sexuality in marriage whether it's christian non-christian whatever um but i find that a lot of my followers relate to me because i am not you know this young skinny person who looks like they if they're married they've been married for all of two seconds trying to tell them how to have healthy sex and a healthy marriage i am a fat middle-aged housewife talking about sex and there's just not a lot of middle-aged housewives talking about what sex realistically looks like right so we i homeschool a special needs son um and my, that's my primary job is homeschooling housewife. And the Christian sex expert is an extension of that. But a lot of my followers find me incredibly relatable because I talk about things like, I, you know, sex isn't, I can't do things in the bedroom that I might've been able to do 20 years ago when we first got married. You know, our bodies are changing and evolving. And what does that look like 20 years into marriage? You mentioned use the term. What did you say? Ex-evangelical? Did I get or exvangelical? Okay, so, tell me what you mean by that and what that crowd oh represents. Gosh. That's a whole theological discussion in and of itself. Okay. So, um, exvangelicals are people who would identify themselves as being raised in the evangelical community, only to grow up and walk away from the church. Um, they typically carry a lot of church hurt and particularly when it comes to areas of sexuality and purity culture, um, purity culture. I don't know specifically what 
how far purity culture may have made its way into the Catholic doctrine, but in evangelical circles, purity culture has inflicted untold amounts of trauma on entire generations. Um, we know that statistically evangelical women are more likely to experience sex sexual dysfunction than non-evangelical women. And that is due largely in part to purity culture trauma. Um, people get really upset with me when I start talking about purity culture because they're like, well, you're just saying that kids should go out and have sex with anyone they want to. Literally, no, that's not what I'm saying. Purity culture is a specific set of teachings that rely heavily on shame and high control techniques in order to control individuals' behavior rather than providing a healthy view of sexuality and um, science-based sex education. And so what does that look like in the evangelical church or evangelical circles, I guess, as far as, um, like in the Catholic church, we're taught not to have sex outside of marriage, but then if we do, we just go to confession. I don't understand how it would be worse than that in evangelical circles as far as how it would produce those kinds of, uh, that kind of dysfunction. So um, purity culture teachings, I have a whole series mm -hmm. on my TikTok about things that people were taught in purity culture. And so statements like um, they, uh, so a youth pastor would whip out a stick of gum and they would say, you know, doesn't this look great and tasty? And then they would like chew it and spit it into their hand and be like, if you have <laughs> sex before you get married, you're no better than this chewed up gum. Who wants to chew this gum now? Or... <laughs> Yeah, like no joke. Or they would take a rose. And so they would say, you know, like, look at this rose. It's so beautiful and perfect, right? All right. So everybody, we're going to pass this around youth group. Everybody make sure that you smell it. You feel how soft the petals are. You know, just take a really, like, really examine this rose, right? So they pass this rose around. And of course, by the time a rose has passed through the grubby hands of 30, 12 to 17 year old children, it's a stick, right? It's a sad, depressed stick. And so it gets to the last child and then the youth pastor takes it and says, when you have sex, you have passed through the hands of this many people and you're this is what you are presenting to your spouse on your wedding day. We don't have any of that as Catholics. I'm happy we just have to go to confession. I don't know. We don't have the mind games like that, I guess. Yeah. So in, <laughs> that is, it's a very, as I said, so it's a cis, it's a very specific set of teachings based on high control and manipulation tactics designed to control behavior through shame and condemnation rather than the actual scripture teachings that we find in the Bible that base our behavior on an actual relationship with Jesus. So it's a very problematic problematic set of teachings. I, I wonder, and I apologize. I mean, I've heard the term purity culture before, uh, and I kind of knew what it meant, but I, I, I'm wondering if, so like as Catholics, we have a, it seems like we have a much more, I want to say firm sort of view of like sin and like, like we approach it more from like, don't 
have sex before marriage because it's sinful and you could end up in hell if you do it as opposed to this sounds more like don't do it because like you're just going to be a less desirable commodity kind of thing <laughs> like is that true like it doesn't seem to be so much don't do it because it's sinful it's it's like don't do it because practically speaking you're going to have a harder time finding a husband or wife or whatever that's going to want that, that that sounds like a maybe a different way of trying to get to the same end if if you don't have this strong sense of like the just it's just immoral to do it or sinful to do it am i am i missing that or so no you are yeah you're on the right path so for many years the evangelical community has made sex and sexual sin the evangelical churches like pet sin and in a lot of ways the evangelical community fetishized virginity mm-hmm. um and so i have heard i actually stitched a video on tiktok i don't know six months or so ago where present day present day a pastor was preaching from the pulpit and tried to make this this illustration that um it's important you know that the um blood that a woman sheds during her first sexual experience with the breaking of her hymen is a symbolic of the covenant between God and his people and all of these things. And I'm like, I, I, uh, first of all, you don't have a basic grasp of anatomy (laughs) and how anatomy works and how God designed anatomy to work. Second of all, that's nowhere in the Bible. Like that is you making leaps and bounds enough to cross an ocean. And it's turning female virginity into this fetishized ideal because the focus in purity culture was always more on the female's virginity Mm -hmm. than male virginity Mm -hmm. and it was very imbalanced they would separate girls and they would do that rose illustration and meanwhile the boys were off playing basketball and they were told don't lust when you get married your wife is going to be there to you know meet your every need and women are being told your entire worth is wrapped up in your virginity and also told things like don't wear a tank top because you'll make the boys lust after you and then they'll get condemned to hell and it'll be all your fault so now she's carrying the weight of his choices his behavior the weight of her own shame and guilt and she's supposed to now get to her wedding night get a ring and be this some sort of sex goddess and so it's all very um, sort of fetishizing the female sexual experience while also trying to control it. I think as Catholics, we're a little equal. We're, we're a little more egalitarian. We just make everybody feel bad. <laughs> yeah. We don't, I don't know. Yeah, I have never been a part of any sort of like teenage service where they did something like that. We just don't talk about it for the most part. We, That's true. <laughs> I think the answer is always just go to confession is what we're told. We we have sort of a we have sort of a Catholic equivalent. Uh we have a guy called Christopher West that you I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's kind of the Catholic equivalent of this in and we've got this whole 
Theology of the Body that came out with John Paul II, which was really designed, I think, to try and romanticize, I think, to some degree, marriage and sexuality. And maybe it's right. I don't know. But, you know, they try to make all these biblical comparisons and, and theological connections. So like you're saying, the bloodshed during the yeah, first comparing marriage to the Trinity and all that, which I don't know. I don't know how persuasive that is to, to most people. Um, sounds like it. I, so I can relate, I guess, to what you're saying here. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, I lost it. Oh, sorry. No idea. Well, so that was sort of the, uh, so did you kind of grow up in that purity culture thing yourself? Is that? A little bit. So I actually didn't get saved until I was 19. Um, and then I got married at 22. So I had three years, three and a half years of, purity culture teachings. Um, <clears throat> but I was also coming from a place of deeply, deeply being deeply broken sexually because, um, so there's a quote from Pascal who said that, um, that there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. And I was trying to fill that God-shaped hole with alcohol and sleeping around and all sorts of things. And when I got saved, my salvation experience was this very Paul on the Damascus road where um, I, it was like the scales fell from my eyes and I really understood the salva salvation of the cross and what Jesus did for me. And, um, you know, and I had a lot to... Um, ask forgiveness for in that, you know, trying to fill that God-shaped hole with sex. And so in a way, purity culture appealed to me in a lot of ways because it was just kind of a pendulum swing from anybody and everybody to a sexual purity sort of mindset. But at the same time, I wasn't coming to that purity culture teaching from a place of um, not having a firm foundation of my relationship with Jesus and wanting to just avoid hell based on my behavior. I was coming from a place of God has done this amazing work in my life and I want to honor him in every area. So while I was exposed to the teachings they didn't take deep root in my soul because I was coming at it more mature, less easily influenced, and from a different perspective than someone who had been raised in that community would be. That makes sense. So, so you're, were you kind of, did you not really have much religious affiliation or upbringing until you were about 18 is that what i'm hearing then um so i was part of a church denomination that does not teach the saving work of jesus in that they teach that kind of all roads go up the same mountain and um you know good people go to heaven that's what i was told my whole life good people go to heaven and it wasn't until i really understood the work of jesus that i realized nobody can define what good is. That's a very subjective sort of theology. 
And so that church is, would call themselves open and affirming. And, um, so they, they follow the Bible as, you know, well, we believe Jesus is God, but just because somebody else doesn't, doesn't make them necessarily wrong. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the environment you grew up in, you said? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's, then- that's how I was raised. And, and that was sort of the background that led to kind of the wild life you had before you were 18 then? Right. Okay. So get to 18, you, you find the church or whatever you, um, go through the process of however you want it. This is foreign terms to Catholics. So being saved and stuff, but I, I know what you mean by that. So get to 18 and, and then kind of is that where you kind of got exposed to this purity culture stuff and found it not all that appealing? Yeah. So when I was saved at 19 and I started Mm -hmm. attending evangelical churches and becoming involved with leadership for like youth groups in evangelical Mm -hmm. churches, um, you know, we actually, the church that I was married in um, is the one that I started attending very soon after I got saved. Um, would actually have what is called purity services. And so for a month, they would have these sort of purity culture teachings at each youth group meeting. And then it would culminate in this service where all the girls would wear white dresses and all of the boys would wear dress slacks and white shirts and ties. And we would do the sanctuary up with flowers and pillars and, you know, swags and all of the things. And we would have this big ceremony where the parents would, we would call the kids up to the front. The parents would come and give their kids a purity ring. And the children would promise to not have sex until they got married to their parents with a ring in front of hundreds of people. Um, and so when you kind of step out of that environment and you tell that story, it's a little wackadoo. It's a little wackadoo. Um, so, and that's and that was the church that my husband and I were married in and we were heavily involved in the youth leadership for years. Um, and at the time I was like, my motivation was, I would tell the kids, you know, I, I don't know how many partners I've had. I am, I was heartbroken, mm-hmm. you know, living in my own sin. And I don't want you to experience that same hurt and heartbreak. And so I was coming and not really also, you know, being 21, 22, not fully understanding the impact that some of these teachings mm. would have that I can look back now after studying all of the, you know, psychology of it and things can understand (laughs) that actively causes harm and that actively causes trauma. And there has to be a better way. How effective do you think those kinds of purity ceremonies were? Like, did the, do you remember, did the other peers that did that, did they respect that or did they kind of laugh about it afterwards? Or was it a very serious, like kind of vow? Yeah, it was very serious when it was happening. Um, but then we still had kids in our youth group wind up pregnant mm-hmm. because 
this is what I tell. So when parents come to me and they say, I want to, I don't know how to talk to my kids about sex because I was raised in purity culture and I know mm -hmm. that hurts and I don't want to pass that, that same trauma onto my kids. How do I talk to them about purity culture? And what I tell them is purity culture comes from a place of seeking to control behavior through shame and condemnation and control. We absolutely need to be teaching our children that we need to wait for marriage, but that needs to come from a place of God's ways are best. And so this is a choice that you can make. I cannot stop you from having sex outside of marriage, mm -hmm. but God's plan for us is perfect in every way. And we, when we fall deeply in love with Jesus, we want to do what he tells us to do. And when you have a deep understanding of who Jesus is, what he did for you, you will want his plan for your life. And I can tell you that his plan for your life is to wait. Mm -hmm. And so you might make a choice that is different from his plan for your life. And that's because God has given us free will. But we need to capture our children's hearts for Jesus before we talk about their behavior. And having sex outside of marriage is a behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I tell the when the parents ask me, how do I talk to my kids about this? Teach them to love Jesus before you tell them about anything else. So how did you get from that to when you started doing kind of the coaching and stuff and I'm sure it's sort of an evolutionary process but kind of how did you get from where you were to kind of where you are now sure um so a million years ago when I was in college good girls from small towns didn't go to school to be sex therapists good girls from small towns went to school for their MRS degree. Mm -hmm. And if you are unfamiliar with evangelical culture, you won't know that the MRS degree is the wedding ring. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> lots of Christian colleges have a phrase called ring by spring. As in, <laughs> if you don't get your engagement ring by spring semester, why even bother coming back to school? And so being a good girl from a small town at a small Christian college, I got engaged the summer before my senior year, a couple weeks after graduation, got married and graduate. I did graduate with my bachelor's in religion and psychology, um, but I continue to remain fascinated with human sexuality. So I continued to study everything I could get my hands on, on my own time. And eventually after I had my son, um, I joined an international ministry where every time the topic of sex would come up, I would get brought into the discussion because of the wisdom that I could bring. And eventually um, the group dubbed me the group sexpert. Um, <laughs> I was eventually asked to join the leadership team of the ministry where we were talking one night about, you know, our hopes and dreams for the future with the leadership team. And I said, um, you know, I was deep in the trenches of homeschooling with a husband who was an over-the-road truck driver who was not home every night. So I'm out here solo parenting a special needs child trying to homeschool him, you know, part of this ministry and thinking, is this all I am for the next 10 years is just 
housewife, homeschool mom. And, you know, dreaming big dreams. I said, this is what I want to do when my son doesn't need me so much anymore. I want to help people have better sex lives. The evangelical church has damaged so many marriages and I want to help save those marriages. I want women to enjoy having sex with their husbands. And um, that discussion kind of got tabled and that was October or November um, in late January, something came up in the ministry, and one of my friends said, Angela, that should be your TikTok handle, is the Christian sexpert. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, it should. Um, so I ran over to TikTok on a whim, reserved the name, didn't think I was going to do anything with it. And she was like, you know, to really make it on TikTok, you have to post four times a day for the algorithm. And I was like, <laughs> what? But I did. On a complete whim, I started posting four times a day. Um, that was the last week of January. By Easter, I went viral with a video at over 5 million views. And God really, in that season, said, I know that you thought this was a later dream, but this is a now thing. And you better figure out how to keep up because I'm blowing this up. Um, so in less than a year, I built my platform to over 100,000 followers. I have multiple products that I have written that are available on my website for download to help with intimacy and sex in marriage. I offer private coaching. I have a private Patreon community where, as I say, I teach all of the spicy things that I can't teach on public socials. Um, I have been on um, the podcast of Sarah Jakes Roberts. If you don't know, she is the daughter of T.D. Jakes. Um, he is a mega church pastor out of Texas. She has <laughs> 5 million followers. Um, I've been invited to be on her podcast, um, speaking engagements, and it's all been in 18 months that God has just blown up the Christian sex expert. Well, good for you. I'm, yeah, that's awesome. I'm jealous of those numbers. understand <laughs> <laughs> how how the purity culture affects people after they're married. Like I get how people might be reserved before they're married, but once they're yeah. married, you'd think they could turn it loose. What are the harms? Um, so as we mentioned earlier, we know that evangelical women are statistically 20% more likely to experience sexual dysfunction that often comes out in the form of a disorder called vaginismus. I've heard of it. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Sounds doesn't sound fun. Vaginismus <laughs> <laughs> is no fun at all. So okay. what vaginismus is, it's often due to psychological trauma. So things like oh. purity culture or sexual abuse. Hmm. And it basically means anytime anything approaches the cave of wonders, it slams its doors shut. And says, thou shalt not pass. So it doesn't matter what it is. Typically, vaginismus victims cannot even use a tampon. Um, they can't insert their own fig fingers because the muscles contract so hard and so painfully that nothing can enter. And so we have this rash of evangelical women getting married, getting to their wedding night, only to wind up in incredible pain and not understand why their husband cannot enter their body. Um, and so many evangelical women are victims of that particular disorder. Um, in other cases, I have coached uh, countless clients hmm. 
who are so deeply ashamed of their own sexuality that they can't talk to their husbands to even express what they would like to happen while they're having sex with their husbands because of the amount of shame that they experience anytime they try and verbalize their desires to this person that is supposed to love them no matter what. Um, so there's so many facets of purity culture that cause damage, particularly to women. Are there any any harms that are common for men? Are they what what's the top issue, couple issues that men experience? Absolutely. Um, so as I stated, guys weren't so nobody who experienced purity culture was given what we would call like a comprehensive sex education, right? Um, so women are not taught to identify their own parts, and certainly men, you know, the the joke of a man can't find her clit. No boy who grew up in purity culture even knows about the clit. And further, guys are just taught, just don't think about it. Don't lust. Don't think about it. When you get married, your wife's going to be there to fulfill all of your needs. So now men are coming into marriage with this expectation that she's going to be this sex goddess ready to spread her legs whenever the whim strikes him. So he has no way of knowing that you have to actually do something to make her want to just he believes that just him wanting is enough to get her in the mood and then is shocked when that's not the case and things like um you know they're told that corn is bad don't use it but they're not told what do I do if I've started using it and now I'm addicted to it because there's so much shame surrounding it that they can't talk to anyone about it. So now we've got people growing up getting married who are experiencing porn-induced erectile dysfunction, death grip syndrome, things like that, um, where it's actual sexual dysfunction for him as well. What is death grip syndrome? Death grip syndrome is when he has accustomed his body to his own hand so much that he has to use more and more pressure in order to get himself off. So he's gripping his penis harder and harder in order to achieve the same results. And a woman's body cannot compete with the strength of his grip in his hand so he might be able to get hard but he can't finish because her body can't <clears throat> squeeze him as tight as his own hand can boy i'm learning so much <laughs> <laughs> so so the purity culture is stay away from porn but if i'm hearing you right there's like it's okay to masturbate is that no masturbation is also condemned but there's no it happens it, it, it's saying. literally just just don't do it. That's it. It's it's. Don't look at porn. Don't masturbate. Don't think about it. The end. Do you and know what no Bible one. verses uh, are cited for that? Um. Honestly, there's not a lot of scripture used in purity culture. Because really, it'd be Leviticus or Onan <laughs> are the two verses that come to mind. And I'm just wondering if they use Onan as well. I wasn't sure. Um. So. Some denominations reference Onan, um, some don't, but 
honestly, in purity culture, it's a lot of, um, you know, like the Bible says that we need to have pure hearts type of verses, right? Clean hands, pure hearts, that type of thing would typically be referenced. But a lot of the, the, I don't know if I can think of a single purity culture teaching off the top of my head that would have actually referenced a specific Bible verse because, right? So we know that the Bible does not lend itself to abuse, right? So they have to, and because purity culture is all about shame and control, you're going to have a hard time using scripture to shame and control someone. So it's more about controlling behavior than it is pointing to scripture in Jesus. So this sort of purity culture, evangelical strain, did it is, I mean, I can understand the rationale. I mean, I say I agree with it. I understand the rationale that, well, don't be masturbating before you're married because by definition, you're going to have to be lusting. You're going to be either using porn or imagination about someone that you're not married to. Um, do they carry that over into marriage uh, and, and and say, don't be masturbating, even if you're imagining your, your spouse or they just assume everybody is getting all the, uh, I guess, all, all the sexual fulfillment they want and therefore it's unnecessary what what what's the what's the purity culture view once you're married on that so evangelical women after we're married um if we go to our church leadership and say my husband is using pornography and he's masturbating and we are broken and hurting help us they're gonna say um, it's your fault a, huh a lot of times the response from leadership is going to be are you giving him enough sex? Yeah, yeah. You know, he wouldn't be turning into pornography and masturbating if he was getting enough sex from you. Mm -hmm. And so once again, the man's sin becomes our responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Sounds sounds worse than what we, what we deal with. <laughs> um, so, okay, so I have to ask this question because this is where the the line really gets pronounced between Catholics and evangelicals is are most evangelicals and the purity culture folks okay with birth control once you're once you're married uh or what what's kind of the the prevailing view on that so <clears throat> birth control is what we would call a personal conviction issue mm -hmm. um most evangelicals are going to take issue with birth control due to the fact that most birth controls are an, uh, oh, this word does not abortifacient. Abortion. Like abortifacient. It, it, yeah. That, that word. My we mouth, Catholics have that word too. So, yeah. <laughs> my mouth refuses to say that one, okay. no matter how many times I practice. Yeah. Um, so most evangelicals are going to take issue with like hormonal birth control because mm. of that property, right? Yep. Now, when it comes to things like condoms or, um, you know, NFP, things like that, barrier methods, those are going to be termed a personal conviction issue as in, you and your husband talk to Jesus and use good wisdom. Okay. And that's even within the sort of the purity culture circles. They don't strongly tell you yes or no, you shouldn't use those things. Correct. Okay. I mean, you do have fringe groups 
with people like the IBLP, the Duggars sort of fringe that I would not, I would say those people that those fringe groups are not indicative of what evangelical culture is actually in America. Those are cults. They are fringe groups. They exist. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are the ones who are going to say, you know, no birth control, it's immoral, things like that. But that is not indicative of the larger evangelical space in America that I would, I would say. So how common is natural family planning in sort of the evangelical circles then? Um, most evangelicals are mystified when you mention natural family planning, um, because it's not something, you know, I do think that the Catholic church does well in teaching the natural family planning method. Um, so the ministry that I mentioned earlier is actually a ministry for, as we call ourselves, crunchy moms. Um, so we would typically issue, um, you know, our first choice is not going to be um, pharmaceuticals, modern medicine, our first choice is going to be, is this something I can deal with, like an herb, a tea, you know, food, can I heal myself with food, sorts of first line of defense, right? Mm -hmm. And so within our ministry, we encourage our members to investigate charting, temping, natural family planning, um, because it does meet our convictions of being a non-abortive method and, um, you know, using good wisdom, things like that. Mm -hmm. And we also like to encourage our members to know what's going on with their bodies, you know, like that's just general good practice. Um, But the evangelical world in general doesn't really know or understand NFP. So, okay. So in those that are using NFP, um, are they using typically using one of these barrier methods or withdrawal or something during the fertile times or they may it just mm-hmm. it, that's largely that's going to vary couple to couple whatever they're comfortable with that that's kind of the major rub that uh, we Catholics and Jonah and I talk about a lot here is I, the 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 no birth control thing is sort of a manageable thing and I like natural family planning i like that my wife uses natural family planning the challenge becomes is if you're trying to space children there's going to be a 10 to 14 day window in there that you gotta you better not be into each other but what can you do in the meantime and for for most of us we were told you just complete hands off each other there's no i know you got the whole other equipment on the playground thing we don't get any of that or we, there's there's dispute about that and there's no solo activity or you're not supposed to although we've got ways of dealing with that on a from a conscience level but that's really where it becomes challenging where you got to those if you've got to be like completely hands off for 14 days i that feels like an eternity for me as a guy i can tell you that <laughs> We, so evangelical culture does not, I would say evangelical culture swings the pendulum too far in the other direction as far as like typical evangelical teachings, um, because there's a very popular teaching that says men need sex every three days and you are obligated to give it to him, Um, you know, and no matter what. Um, and that is incredibly damaging. 
um, because we know that obligation kills desire. And so if a wife feels obligated to have sex every three days, she's never going to want to, she's never going to have the opportunity to enjoy it. Um, so there is, you know, some definite differences between the two cultures. Yeah, that's, I, and I really wanted to have this, this conversation with you. Cause I kind of, I knew you had mentioned that and, and maybe it's the word need and maybe it's the word sex. I don't know, because your your definition of sex is probably broader than than we as catholics tend to view it so i mean i could just say as a as a man at a personal level so joan and i came up with this term we call pmas <laughs> i don't think anyone's used it before but it's postmarital act syndrome and i can tell you with absolute regularity that uh three to four days after intimacy is a we call that the bliss period. It's pretty good. And then you get after that. And as a man, things get uncomfortable and the hormones get stronger and you crave that you crave something you crave a release. Um, I'm not sure that's a need, but it's a, <clears throat> there's a biological thing that changes at three or four days. Um, and when you say sex, men don't need sex, do you mean just don't need intercourse or do you, do you believe that men shouldn't need any kind of sexual intimacy with her spouse and or solo activity what, what's what do you mean by that so the evangelical definition of men need sex every three days typically is men need to orgasm every three days okay um that's typically what evangelicals mean when they use that phrase okay that's not and, what you're gonna hear taught from me what's what's your what's your definition. view then? okay tell me what your view is um, so, so in the evangelical community, the argument has always been, well, that's just how God designed men. God designed men to need it every, to need to orgasm every three days. That is nowhere found in scripture. Nowhere. What is found in scripture is when we look at historical Judaism and how they handled battles and wars they were not having sex with their wives and so if that's truly what god's design for male sexuality was ancient jews going off to war would not be abstaining from sex with their wives they would have taken their wives with them into battle and made sure that they could be having sex every three days Instead, those men were completely celibate and they were expected to be completely celibate for the duration, however long the war took to wage. It could be years in some cases. So do you think, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I don't necessarily disagree with those <laughs> them either. Uh, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I, I I'm just... I don't know if this is the way God designed it, or this is just our nature, or this is an effect of original sin. I've heard all kinds of explanations, but biologically, there is definitely, there is a 72-hour window where it's different. Um, what we should do with that, I don't know. I mean, I, usually I, I, we're told, suck it up, buddy, and maybe that is the answer and I, think, no, I think that's where you have to have communication with your wife and just talk about how you feel and just be very open and that's really the only way to move forward and 
find resolution where both people are happy. I don't disagree that communication with your wife is ever a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I would also question if it's a psychological dependence. Because if you are having these very strong feelings by X number of days, my question would be coming from a background with a you know a degree in psychology, have you created a psychological dependence on this happening every so many days? I would say there's physiological features that happen. The worst part is when you get, you can't sleep. Like you just keep getting woken up over and over again repeatedly at night i think that's the one of the main issues that happens after like a week especially and then like you can just kind of you can feel it in your your body just feels different i don't know how to explain that part but and i'm not saying it's not psychological either i mean i'm just saying what for whatever reason somehow craig and i found each other and we happen to have the same symptoms I don't I am know. <laughs> not, this is in no way me trying to invalidate your experience. So please don't think that I am saying, oh, you shouldn't be having like experiencing sleeplessness or something. Um, I'm going to throw my own husband under the bus a little bit, though. When he and I first got married, he was addicted to Mountain Dew. Like it was, you know, the early 2000s when every young guy in his early late teens, early 20s was drinking Mountain Dew. And my husband could sit down, watch a movie with a two liter of Mountain Dew and polish it off at the end of the movie. And when he tried to quit drinking Mountain Dew, he had nosebleeds just by cutting out Mountain Dew. So we know that, and so we know our body is deeply affected by our psychology. Just look at the vaginismus that we discussed earlier, right? Even a virgin, a woman who has experienced no sexual trauma, a virgin on her wedding night can have a violent negative physiological response to something that happened to her psychologically. And so that is why I am proposing it is worth examining if it is a psychological dependence Um, something that I see a lot in coaching is men who use sex with their wives in order to prop up their ego. It's a sort of, I feel more manly when, you know, there's consistent sex happening. Um, so in, you know, there's not going to be one right answer for every person. It could be multiple reasons for multiple people who are experiencing similar feelings um all i can do is point back to god's people in the bible were not doing it every three days you know even if we look at god's design as far as when women were on their periods they could not even sleep a husband and wife couldn't even sleep in the same bed right because she was ritually unclean until she completed her mikvah. And so if God's design was a man needed to release every three days, he would not have forbidden husband and wives to even sleep in the same bed when she was on her period. Right. And so that's where my, you know, where I'm coming from with my job and what I'm saying is let's look at the biblical blueprint for God's design for sexuality. 
And I believe that the males were ritually impure for a day after an emission of semen. So I think if they were in battle, I don't know how they handled that during battle. Like, I'm, sh- I'm sure it must have happened. Did the did the Jews care if they were masturbating in battle? I mean, yeah, I mean. So, yeah, so it would have been expected that they were completely celibate during battle. Um, but also the other thing to remember is that, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, the Jewish day starts, ends differently than ours mm-hmm. does. We think our day starts in the morning. Mm-hmm. Theirs starts at sundown. Mm-hmm. Um, so their day started at bedtime. Mm-hmm. So that would have also, so they may have been ritually unclean for the day, but their day would have ended at, you know, 7, 8 p.m. Okay, so... As far as evaluating whether it's a psychological issue, how would you do that as far as, uh, you know, just like, like, so for example, I think that common symptoms that Craig and I discuss are just like I said, the sleeplessness um, and just tension. I don't know. It's just different. But then after, like if you're intimate with your wife too, then life is just, better in general and uh so i'm not sure if really it's a biological issue created by god so we are having frequent intimacy to lead to this closer connection with our wife or if this is all just some sort of psychological manifestation that we're having that's really not a good thing like what what would you say like how, how would you decide whether it's psychological versus biological you know healthy versus unhealthy that sort of thing um, that would be something that would be really worth exploring with a therapist because that's great. Now you're deep, deep diving into like your core beliefs about who you are as a person, your core beliefs about sexuality, things like that. Um, the problem really be if your marriage is healthy and happy and your wife is perfectly content that's one thing but the issue really becomes when one or the other starts to feel obligated oh of course and i we totally get that so you know if you are saying to her well i'm feeling sleepless you know i'm not sleeping and i'm not you know i can't concentrate and things like that is she now even if your intent is to not say well you have to have sex with me so i feel better right but i think a lot of women are going to feel a sense of well i have to do this because otherwise he's not going to get any sleep tonight and he has to go to work and what if he loses his job because he's not sleeping well and things like that so we need to be really careful around the messages that we're conveying to each other, the language that we're using, and really um, being aware of those issues. So, so, what, what, what would be your advice to that woman? I mean, do you, do you do you tell the husband either suck it up or take a pill or go take care of? I think you've said you got two hands and imagination. Um, is that the solution you propose? 
I, so my suggestion is never going to involve telling someone to, as I would say, like fly solo. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, so in evangelical culture, um, when I look at the Bible, um, what I teach is the Bible says that we should not lust. Um, I don't see any scripture that specifically prohibits masturbation. And so my questions are things like, well, why are you wanting to fly solo? Why are you wanting to use your hand? You know, what's the driving factor? What's the motivation there? Can you do it without lusting? Is it taking away from intimacy with your spouse? Things like that. Um, and I would honestly, like if it was a couple that was in coaching with me, I would want the focus shifted off of him him and his orgasm and, you know, could be fulfilling that orgasm to a place of how do we create a space of mutual happiness and intimacy? Um, one of the things that I say is sex should be the celebration of intimacy that you have already created before you ever reach the bedroom. And so if we shift the focus away from this <clears throat> biological urge to deep emotional focusing on connection the sex part should flow naturally out of that if did, did that make sense yeah and we totally agree with that yeah, I, I, I think i think part of it is too is that we aren't in neither craig nor i are in those kind of relationships where it's a like a bad situation as far as somebody you know would feel an obligation or whatever yeah i mean I want it more than my wife does. I think that's pretty common. That's, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's an album, you know, but here's the problem. I mean, here's this situation that at least we as Catholics deal with is I'm, I'm telling you the symptoms are real. I'm telling you three or four days is a real thing. Whatever is causing that. I don't know. I'm a former Mountain Dew addict. Um, and we both have really strong wills is the issue. Yeah, like, I mean, nothing else is quite like this, but whatever the cause of it is, it's real. And it interferes with my life, <laughs> which in turn interferes with my wife's life and my wife's life. And I don't go to her and say, Hey, take care of me. But the, the reality is it's interfering with my life. And I'm told like I'm, I'm holding up a catechism. So we Catholics got that rule book. Essentially. Yep, yes. I got it tabbed. This is 2352 catechism says you shall not masturbate. That takes that off the table. So my options are just two nights ago, I was up at three o'clock in the morning uh, eating a grilled cheese sandwich because I could not sleep. And we uh, I'm on the no fly list right now. And so for NFP reasons, for NFP reasons. <laughs> and it's it, so it, which is fine. I mean, I didn't go to my wife and say, hey, take care of me. But that was reality and we we only have two options one is just endure it or our wife makes her makes herself available to us i'm not saying it's an obligation thing but those are the options that we have um if if you have more options available to you whether it's other things on the playground or telling the guy to go take care of it himself if it gets so bad i don't know if that's that's a very different world than we live in I guess my my background in psychology has all kinds of questions now because now I'm wondering if 
part of what is happening is um this is purely like theoretical psychological babble speculation and is in no way meant to be a condemnation of the catholic faith either of you personally or anything like that we won't be offended you can't offend this girl you can't offend these guys (laughs) i just want to well i don't want anyone think that i'm out here like catholic bashing because i'm not we do that anyway i'm just so we know right when we talk about like forbidden fruit if i tell my son to not get into the snack cabinet it does not matter if he's hungry he now wants a snack he could be as full as full can be. But the minute I say, don't go in the snack cabinet, I want chips, right? That's human nature. We want what we cannot have. And so wondering if there is some level of, I am limited in the, our, our resources are limited, right? Right. We have X number of calendar days in which we can have sex due to our faith system and our use of natural family planning. And because of that, you guys, your your little lizard brain is saying, oh, I have to do it because we only have X number of days. And if we don't do it in X number of days, it's going to it's going to go away and we're not going to have it again. And it's going to be even longer. Right. And. That is not saying, you know, like you just need to abandon your faith system or anything like that, but it is intriguing the way that our brains work when we have a perceived limited resource. I can see that being a factor for some people, but I just don't think that's a factor for me personally. Let me, let me say two things. Number one, and this is anecdotal from my own experience, when my wife and I sort of had a had a conversation we kind of made it a point to increase intimacy to basically once every four days and these issues became completely a non-issue for me um it's i mean so that's that is true so i i think there is a strong biological reality here but let me ask you this let me let me kind of flip the ball back in your side of the court here is it possible that because I don't know what it's like to have PMS? Is it possible that you as a woman just don't know what it's like to have this because you can't relate to this and I can't relate to you? But I'm telling you, I mean, I'm telling you with a great deal of confidence, this is real. And 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 if you don't experience that, we men and women have very different bodies, different experiences, sex and orgasm does different things. Is it just possible that you are just not able to relate to it because it's not going to be your experience? So now you're playing into a stereotype of men just want sex more often than women. And we know that that might be true for some people, but it's not true for all people. I hear from wives daily who are frustrated beyond belief because they want sex more often than their husbands do. And I have not met they, one of those. Why, why do you think that happens? Do you think yeah. it's a porn related issue or like masturbation? Oh my gosh. It could be, there could be a million reasons. Um, So now we're going to start looking at what would be called responsive desire versus spontaneous mm-hmm. desire. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So spontaneous desire is the wind blew. I could hop into bed. Responsive desire. So sub- spontaneous desire is my body wants sex. My mind wants sex. They're on the same, like mm-hmm. same plane. Mm-hmm. Responsive desire says, I need to actually be doing the sexy thing before my brain catches up and says, oh, I do want sex, mm-hmm. right? And so many people think that men have responsive desire and women have spontaneous desire. And that is not the case at all. It it can go either way. There are men who experience responsive desire. There are women who experience spontaneous desire. So that can be a factor at play. Um, we can start looking at attachment theory and looking at how attachment theories would impact, you know, is it, you know, you've got an anxious attached person with a avoidant attached person. And so this anxious attached is trying to prop up her ego by using her husband's sexual desire to make herself feel better. He senses that she needs him to desire her sexually so she feels better about himself and because he's avoidant he's going to not want to do it and so now we've got a situation where she says i want it more often than he does you know there could be a a, it could be as simple as a he has a testosterone deficiency um you know he could have something like pre-diabetes which we know affects testosterone it could be porn. It could be he has his own sexual trauma. You know, he may have been sexually abused. It Just as many reasons for a woman who might not be interested, there can be as a man who is just not interested as often as his wife. And I would say, too, like to support what Craig said, it was interesting, too, for my wife and I. So um, we had a less than intimate marriage for a while, but then we just started talking about it and we got on the discussion about how frequently I would like to have relations. And uh, she just said kind of sure. She said it just wasn't high on her, her list of things to do or whatever. But then in those times where we are frequent, like more than once a week, there's really no temptation for solo activity or anything like that. And the biological aspect of it, I think gets overlooked. And we're not saying that anybody should, you know, be coerced into anything. I mean, it should be, you know, the situation where everybody where both people want to come together but uh i i think there is a certain place for the biological aspect of it that um i don't think it's discussed a lot but you're saying that at least some people say that men need it every three days and that is something that i had never heard before that's just something that we talked about and it lined up i don't know go ahead The real issue becomes when we start discussing sex as a biological need, right? You start getting into, no matter how you frame that, you're going to wind up with a sense of obligation because need, and if we back up, needs don't require the use of someone else's body, right? So you need food, you need air you know, you need shelter. None of those require the use of someone else's body. And so when you have this framework of, well, I have this biological need that's driving me, but the only place that I can slake it is in your body. 
she oh, I totally understand that yeah she's now trapped even if you have no intention of ever touching her when she doesn't want touched she is now trapped with language her language and her faith and so there is you start to get into murky areas of consent. Can she truly freely consent if she believes that her husband may commit some sort of mortal sin if she doesn't agree? Um, so it becomes a, a real concerning area as far as consent and things like that when we start framing it in terms of you know biological need and things like that well i don't necessarily disagree with much of that but let me let me say two things number one if my appendix goes bad i need to have it taken out and i can't do that myself i can do a lot of things but i i'm gonna need someone else to take care of that that's more of a joke than anything else but but you know the our perspective is we're just like we're Catholic guys and you're Christian guys and like I don't make these rules like I I'm not here I'm not even here defending this stuff I'm just I'm I'm living within this this framework of what I believe and want to believe and trying to make the best of it and, and reconcile what we believe as Catholics with what I know my body I'm, I'm trying to understand my body what it's telling me and I understand my wife's body. And if, if, if we're up to me, I would never impose myself on my wife. And I don't do that anyway, but when there's a moral implication, it's that I don't know how to factor that in because I, I want to, I want to enjoy heaven with, with our Lord as well. And this is just a major, major uh, moral issue for, for, for us as Catholics, and I guess for evangelicals too, maybe more so for us as Catholics, because we just have this concept of mortal sin. And so it's a it's a matter of trying to like make all these pieces fit together in a way that I don't I don't know that I have the answers, but I'm just telling you there's a real struggle there. And I totally get your perspective yeah. as far as how a wife could feel trapped, or a husband, I guess, if the wife wants yeah. sex more often. But um I totally understand that. And I guess, you know, that wasn't an issue in our house. I, mean, I still for, get turned down. For a long, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it, you know, that happens. For a long time, I purposely did not burden my wife with this. And she had no idea that it was, that it, you know, it was something I just really felt miserable about a lot. Turn, and we were enforced in a situation where we had to talk about it. And, you know, I, I don't know if I was better off when I was just sort of suffering alone and not trying to burden her with this versus now where we have a much better understanding of each other. And I mean, I think we're happier now. I think she's happier now. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I'm just telling you from my own experience, this is what, it, what it's like. And I mean, I think that communication is important, but uh, mm. you know, you, you can, like she said, you could see how it can really go awry. Absolutely. I mean, that, absolutely. And I want to make clear, like I'm in no way condemning anybody with like I am simply pointing out the ethical issues that I see in my work mm -hmm. um you know when we the, around the language that we use the concepts when we frame concepts in certain ways 
it raises this ethical issue versus framing it in another way, things like that. You know, those are things that you need to be in communication about and um, clear about. One thing that I would say 